Hi, our fellow hypnots. This is Dr. Jan Roberts here, here with our lovely co-host. Farmer Randy. <laughs> Randy Cameron. Welcome back, everybody. It's been a few months, and uh, we had a wonderful vacation, but we miss you guys. We yeah. miss being on the air. We miss talking about the crazy cannabis bonanza of New Hemp Times. Yep. So welcome aboard. Today is a very special kind of day. Um, I'm going to do a little disclaimer. It's very early in the morning for us. So we are, I am not at my best, but please yes, bear you with are. me. Don't say that. You're always at your best. Oh, you thank you. Randy, he always makes us feel very good here. <laughs> so anyway, um, today what we're going to do, we're doing something that we, we really, over the break, realized that we need to be talking more about the clinical stuff as well. We have some really fun things going on this season. We're going to see more comedy. We're going to see more cannabusters coming on. But we're also going to be doing something we like to call Tales from the Clinic. And today's episode is featuring our guests that we are so excited that all of us would wake up early to get here to do That's this right. on a Saturday morning yeah. and we would love to welcome the Knox Docs. So with us we have Dr. Janice Knox. Would you like to say hello? Hello everybody. Hey. Be here. <laughs> and then we have Dr. Jessica Knox. Hello. Thank you for having us. <laughs> and Dr. Rachel Knox. Good morning, everyone. So we are so excited that you're here to join us virtually via your car or whatever you listen to. But we're happy to have the Knox Docs today because we are, as fellow clinicians, they obviously handle things differently than I do. But we're, we're excited because we're all here for the endocannabinoid system. So I wanted to just start this podcast with learning more about you guys and kind of what got you into this space. So really, what started you on your journey with cannabis? Well, it, this is Dr. Janice Knox talking, and it started with me. I am a board-certified anesthesiologist for 35 years, and when I retired, I was invited to one of the cannabis clinics, and after getting there and seeing the clientele that showed up, I was pleasantly surprised because it wasn't the Rastafarian, you know, Burke shoe wearing, <laughs> you know, tie dyed shirt wearing person smoking a joint. Right. They were grandfathers <laughs> and grandmothers and retired business people all looking for a change of life. And in doing that, I realized they wanted more than just to get the medical marijuana card. Right. They wanted help too used up this plant that they were still maybe on the fence about and knew they wanted to try it. Sure. It had failed conventional medicine and vice versa. Sure. And they were looking for direction from a physician. So I felt propelled to learn. So you felt like, if I'm hearing you correctly, because I think I experienced this too, and I'm curious you know, what your daughters think as well, is that you initially had this kind of idea of what a medical cannabis patient would look like. Correct. Prejudgment. And mm -hmm. that's from the old stigma yeah. from what we learned, what they look mm -hmm. like, who they are. They're, right. they're drug addicts just wanting to get high. And right. that was that's who I expected to see walk through the door. So as your evolution as a physician, um, looking at the, the, the patients that were there, did you come in with uh, a predisposition about how you would treat or whether you would treat or the commitment you would go in? Was there a reservation about jumping in? Of course, there's reservations because we all were taught the old mm -hmm. stigma about what cannabis was, the drug of mm -hmm. abuse. And right. of course, I grew up in a church, too, where mm -hmm. you had that religious thing going on. Mm -hmm. And going to UC Berkeley, I had my preconceived 
you know, visual what okay. these people are going to look like. Yep. And also I'd had a couple of colleagues who disappeared, one for cannabis abuse, mm-hmm. and she was sent away for a few months, and one for very sad and fentanyl abuse. So I mm. thought these people are just coming to get my wonderful doctor signature yep. to get high. Right. right. And that's who I thought was going to come and show up. I was right. pleasantly surprised. What year was that? This was 2011. Wow. So, yes. you know, it's kind of funny because that's about the time that I kind of came into. I actually had shingles. And prior to that, as a mental health clinician, I always thought, and, and I had used cannabis growing up, you know, and, and really, you know, occasionally still did and, and even agreed with legalization and all. But I still had this internalized stigma, not understanding what the medical cannabis movement was. And it wasn't until I had shingles and they put me on gabapentin and I couldn't put two words together that I was like, something's wrong. And and when I started using cannabis and, and I was self-medicating, I, I couldn't get over how much better I was feeling, how it took away the neuralgia because I had it in my face and in my eye. And, and from a form of, you know, it was just like, oh my God, there's something to this. And that's kind of what started my journey. So, so you as a physician kind of came to this realization that, holy cow, there's something going on here. And then what was the trajectory from that point? And because you're here with your daughters, I know yes, your husband's yes, involved yes, with this, yes. the Knox stocks. I love yes. that. <laughs> you know, so how did that kind of come? Well, once I realized as an anesthesiologist, you know, we know physiology and pharmacology, but I couldn't answer any of their questions. Mm. I didn't know the strains. I didn't know what the plant looked like, what it smelled like. So I was propelled to learn. So I went, and what are these people after? Why are they after this? And so once I realized what the science said, then I wondered, how did it get kicked off the American Pharmacopeia? And then I read the history. Yeah. And then came very angry as a, both a physician and as a consumer. And right. so I learned as much as I could, and then I introduced you guys really need to learn about this endocannabinoid system. I didn't do that just with my kids, but running into young residents at different functions, I would ask them, do you know about the endocannabinoid system? They'd look at me with a raised eyebrow, like, lady, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but I thought it was, it was important that we start understanding, because this was, this was huge in my mind as a, as a physician understanding physiology and pharmacology. I mean, it's just upset almost everything we've learned in medical school, mm-hmm. physiology class. Wow. So how did you get your family involved? Because you guys are, you know, you're speaking all over the world. You're you're kind of becoming part of the fabric of really, I, I like to say that we're all kind of, um, proce- I don't want to say proselytized because that sounds so negative, but you know, we're all fe- very passionate mm-hmm. and, and you guys are everywhere. You know, Rachel, God bless you for flying back so late <laughs> and being here early this morning. You were in Denver yesterday. Mm-hmm. You guys have been here in New York all week. You're out of Oregon. And, and so how did all of that kind of start to coalesce? <laughs> <laughs> Which one's going to talk? Well, I don't, I don't know how that that's his business so i i will speak for dr rachel and myself we we both finished residency in 2015 um rachel specialized in family and integrative medicine i specialized in preventive medicine so these are primary care specialties and i even in my primary care specialty felt like i wasn't doing enough or i hadn't been trained in how to keep people healthy that's why i went into primary care i'm primarily interested in you know, how do we use lifestyle um, and healthy living to keep people healthy as opposed to trying to bring people back from being sick? 90% of my time in my primary care clinic was spent 
managing people's long lists of pharmaceutical drugs. Right. They weren't feeling any better. They weren't getting better. Um, and I was, you know, pushing drugs. <laughs> um, and so I was frustrated with the conventional medical system. And by that time, my mom had started talking to us about the endocannabinoid system and about the patient experiences she was witnessing in these cannabis clinics in Oregon. Uh, and it was such a stark difference from what I was seeing with my own patients. She was talking about patients who were healing um, or worst case scenario, they were at least getting improved quality of life. Yep. I wasn't seeing those improvements in my own patients doing all the things that conventional medicine says we should do. And I was very frustrated by that. So hearing about my mom's experience and these people finding healing um, and, and improved quality of life with a botanical medicine, a natural medicine, spoke to me um, in a very strong way. And I, you know, I had my own bias to get over because when when my mom started talking to us about the endocannabinoid system and cannabis, you know, I too was trained in the medical, the conventional medical paradigm where cannabis is only a drug of abuse. Yep. We didn't learn one thing about the endocannabinoid system, even though we graduated medical school 20 years after the, the um, foundational components of that system had been identified. We learned nothing about it. So, you know, here my mom is talking about the endocannabinoid system. I'm like, well, I've never heard of that. What, like, what is she talking about? <laughs> is that about? real? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. This, this sounds like some crazy stuff that's mm. just justifying all these people who want to get hot, you know? Mm. So I had my own bias to get over. But for me, what was so compelling were the patient stories. You know, it's hard to ignore uh, patients experiencing healing and improved quality of life that we don't see in our conventional medicine. Yeah. And so when you start hearing those stories over and over again, you know there's something there. Um, and that was enough for me to to get curious. And when I finished residency, to start working in cannabis clinics myself. Wow. And so you started to work in cannabis clinics. And Rachel, how did you get involved in this? Yeah, I, I didn't have the biases or reservations that my mom and sister just described. When I... Jess and I went to Tufts for medical school. We got our dual degree in medicine and business. And our business track was in hospital administration. So it was the business of medicine. Right. And so very early on in medical school, I recognized that we were being trained into the business of medicine. It's a chronic disease management care system, not mm -hmm. a healthcare system. And so I think I was rebelling against that machine from even then because I began to grow frustrated with the fact that we weren't learning nutrition, we weren't learning lifestyle as medicine. Right. Um, at that time, I wasn't aware of the fields of functional medicine or lifestyle medicine. I didn't know what a naturopath was. Uh, both my parents were conventional doctors. So, you know, doctoring meant conventional medicine at that time. Mm -hmm. But I grew pretty sharp in that system. And I remember asking my third year, uh, one of our attending um, docs, on the surgery rotation, because in surgery, we were seeing a lot of diabetics, so complications of diabetes, complications of heart disease. And I asked, why aren't we teaching our patients how to prevent these diseases? They, they're preventable. I understand that. And the response was kind of flippant. Oh, we don't have the time to talk to them, and they're not going to listen anyways. <laughs> oh I was like, that's a terrible response. And around that time, I would talk to my mom about, mom, medicine's not for me anymore. Like, I don't want to do this. Um, and with her encouragement that I at least get a year under my belt, so an intern year, I really reluctantly applied to family medicine programs. But then I found one that also offered integrative medicine. So it offered 
some insight into ancient Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and botanical medicine. Uh And so I figured I could do this. I could could get with this program. And so I found a residency, got into that residency and went and learned as much as I could about natural medicine. And when my mom started talking about cannabis, I went to my attendings and asked them what they thought. And same flippant responses, you know, there's not enough research, you know, whatever. Um, And I knew that that wasn't correct. Um, so I was excited to get home to Oregon mm-hmm. and to start seeing patients in the clinic. As a matter of fact, I took a, a week break during my third year of residency, came home and saw patients while I was still in family medicine <laughs> residency. So cool. <laughs> so cool. So I I have a question for you guys, four doctors. I'm surrounded by so much education. It's Powerful much. women, Randy. Brilliant, brilliant <laughs> women. Brilliant women. So... Um, as as a West Indian myself, um, in, in the seventies, I used to spend tons of time in in the islands. So um, I rem, you know, I knew what it smelled like as a child. And then growing up in Harlem in the nineties, we were the the face of mm-hmm. of it, literally. Um, I had early interactions with West Indian uh, herbalists. And who, to me, had the first deep knowledge of holistic botanical usage. And um, um, when I lived in L.A., there was one particular Rastafarian who I had great respect for. And he's a brilliant man. He would talk about um, the lack of respect he would receive from black doctors uh, that he expected to um, be embraced by because his understanding of the herbal path that came from um, knowledge of Africa and Asia and China and ended up in the West Indies and they were not afraid to practice and spread it and they've seen concrete results. So what I'm wondering and and, and there's a I, I live across the street from a herbal juice shop in Harlem now that's mm-hmm. it's the rage and now doctors black doctors from um, St. Luke's and Harlem Hospital, they, you, you'll see him in, you know, there. Is there a bridge? Is there something coming together? Or is there acknowledgement? Or do you guys see that? Or is there a value in what, what these herbalists have been believing and practicing and giving out to their folks? Well, it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. My, my first, one of my first talks I gave was at a naturopathic mm-hmm. school, university in mm-hmm. Portland. And you'd be surprised at the pushback against the cannabis plant Mm -hmm. that was voiced at that time. And I think although they were at the forefront of what I think is plant medicine, Mm -hmm. they still had those old stigma and biases against the plant itself Mm -hmm. and actually felt threatened uh, by this plant. Um, But overall, I think the key to all of it is acceptance. It's the stigma. It's the the destruction of the relationship between man and and plants that happened in the 30s. So everybody's been trained to be afraid. And and there were consequences. People went to jail behind this. So you had a stigma that was sort of um, underlined by, if you do this, you're going to pay a heavy price financially and even, you know, breaking up your family. So I think... Part of that is that fear, let alone conventional medicine 
folks being trained, black or white, whatever, in the conventional way, which is a pharmaceutical way. Sure, but we're also beholden to our medical licenses. Mm. Yes, that may I don't be- think a lot of us feel like we have the freedom to explore because as soon as we're, you know, docs known for right. treating this or curing that with a non-conventional mm-hmm. substance, then, you know, we and, have bullseyes yeah. on and our And we back. were talking about this yesterday at lunch about how, like, even myself, I and I was asking your mom about this, like the fear also of, you know, my malpractice insurance mm-hmm. and what are the implications and am I going to get in trouble, you know, with my mm-hmm. license. I, mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. kind of have that in the back mm-hmm. of my mind. And yeah, so that's correct. And, and that's a very for what you guys are doing, you have to I'm assuming you carry that burden with you mm-hmm. a lot. That's correct. You know, because yeah. of that fear, because we were in at, at a hospital yesterday talking about which was an interesting thing because none of us knew we were actually going to be talking yesterday. We all thought we were going on a tour. But but I think what we saw yesterday were a lot of physicians who were totally entrenched in that fear. Yes, yes. You know, and, and so I'm curious, how do you guys, because that fear of the unknown, they think that they're still relying on research that was funded through... Um, funding agencies whose whole goal was to demonstrate the pathology around cannabis mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. looking at it from a health perspective, mm-hmm. you know, and looking at it objectively. So so I know I encounter it, but I, I'm sure you do. We saw it yesterday. How do you kind of combat the fear with physicians who don't know a lot about the history and really what the current research is showing. They want to kind of tout a research that was done in 1985, you know, or in the seventies or, or the nine early nineties. And, and that was just kind of based on those old paradigms. How do you deal with that? And, you know, and that's correct. Most physicians are afraid of for their DEA licenses and then their state licenses. Mm-hmm. And what we've experienced is when we approach physicians in a certain way, mm-hmm. we can get them to listen. And we always would like to start with the history. Mm-hmm. Let them understand how I learned about it. You know, I read the, the, the congressional records. Once I understand that all of this, the stigma is based on, you know, finances, um, uh, uh, politicians mm. and ideologues and, mm. you know, uh, industrialists made the rules for this. It and wasn't based on research. Mm. And they were racist. That they use racism to yep. drive it home. But once you, you give them that background, that context, and then you follow that with the science so they actually see this is real. I mean, this is hardwired physiology in all of our bodies. Mm. And let them make the connection. Mm. So when we guide them through, it seems open their minds a bit more for them to be ready to even hear about what we're saying. And we've had a lot of re- re- um, positive results from approaching clinicians in that manner. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And I always say, even if I agree with that wholeheartedly, but at minimum, we clinicians, doctors specifically, we need to be objective. Mm-hmm. People, just patients, people are using cannabis and they wind up in your office and are talking to you about it, it's actually your job to listen and be objective about this. Yeah, it's a plant, but it's pharmacologically active in the body. The body has a physiologic system that these phytochemicals are working on. Yeah, objectively need to know something about it. Mm-hmm. Like your religiosity aside, it right. is our job and our due diligence to understand the physiology of the endocannabinoid system, at least to a degree, and the pharmacology 
of the phytochemicals in cannabis so that we can have intelligent conversations with patients. It is not enough anymore. And I even think it is malpractice to censor yourself and Absolutely. not have intelligent conversations with your patients. Mm-hmm. You're actually putting them at a disservice. Are you telling them now to go to talk to the bed tender? Right. About their health care right. needs with cannabis? Right. That's the wrong thing to do. And so I think medical boards need to take heed to that alone for risk management purposes, for public health purposes. We healthcare providers need to know a thing or two about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Are you guys kind of in your mission, are you looking to address that issue? Because I'm I share this yeah. concern around the bud tenders making medical decisions. You know, as a mental health clinician, obviously mine's a little bit differently. We find that a lot of patients don't talk about it because they're afraid they're gonna get mm-hmm. labeled. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, you have clinics where people are using this so that they're much more open about it. Yeah. And and I worry about our patients not feeling safe to disclose this with their clinicians, with their physicians, you know, with whomever, because of the potential drug-drug interactions that mm-hmm. could be going on. And, and, and I mean, I mean, it is what it is. And so how would you, how do you guys see yourself impacting kind of that movement to make medical establishments, um, like medical associations, start to become more accountable for this? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm concerned about these states where they have bud tenders, where they don't have a PharmD, you know, helping out and they have these bud tenders who have no medical training telling people. I mean, I had a patient who the bud tender had recommended a certain variety and it completely exacerbated her anxiety. I never would have ever oh, yeah. thought that we're, this. We're going to see some and malpractice she was, suits. And she was taking clonopin with it. Yeah. I'm like, please don't, you know, I'm like, this is not right. So how, what are you guys yeah. going, are you like, what do you see yourselves doing or are you doing this already? Yeah. So I, we felt early on that we needed to get involved with regulators in one way or another. Um, so in Oregon, the opportunity for one of us to apply to the Oregon Cannabis Commission came up. And so I was the one of the three of the docs in Oregon to apply. And so this year I'm the chair of the Oregon Cannabis Commission. And we talk a lot about how we need to really... How, what, what our approach needs to be going to medical boards, um, nursing boards, Oregon Health Sciences University. How do we crack these folks? These right. um, and what I've realized in working with the commission is that there aren't a whole lot of healthcare providers who show up to our meetings yep. and express their concerns and their voice. So what we've founded in Oregon recently, the Oregon Cannabis Clinicians Group, clinicians being broad intentionally to include all healthcare providers, mm-hmm. for us to now have a lobbying voice to go before legislators, but not only them, to go back to our boards in Oregon and to have these conversations around the conversation of harm reduction and risk management. It's amazing. I'm on um, a state's, I was a governor's appointee to a regulation uh, committee through the state, and I can't get over the fact that they only meet once a year. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have these conversations. They don't. don't. And so... I swear every time they hold it, I'm out of the country. So I don't, I, I th- I'm starting to think it might be a little personal, trying not to take it personally. But, you know, it, to me, I would love to know more about what you're doing. Maybe we could talk offline yeah. because I feel compelled that we have to get this medical establishment to start. Because at the end of the day, this is about patient care and it's about the impact on the patient. So as a cultivator and somebody who's always had great respect for, for green thumb people, it's the only mm-hmm. jobs I really ever loved myself that I've held for a long time. Um, I know how long it takes 
to have a deep understanding for the plant and the differences and um, the mastery of cultivation. And I wonder how long will that take to saturate on a level um, in the medical field where this understanding that you were just talking about is really deeply um, spread and used um, from foundation of cultivation to out to the patients. Mm -hmm. And how long are we anticipating that could take? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's it's still going to be a while, a while yeah. for that to mm -hmm. happen. What's really important and what we Knox docs tried to push is mm -hmm. how important is understanding that physiology and the pharmacology. Mm -hmm. Patients are going to use this whether doctors are ready for it or not. That's and right. not just MDs, but all healthcare providers. And so the education piece is huge, not only for clinicians, but for everybody really on that supply chain. Because there's certain things that we expect in a product that we would like to see that we have to start from seed and going to sale. This is what we need to see as clinicians to feel like we can recommend a product to a, a patient yeah. and with, with knowing our licenses are on the line. But more importantly, we see just people making all kind of stuff out there. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they need some direction. If this is going to be really a medicine, yes. we're going to have to have some standards set, you know, the language set, so that everybody understands what they're doing and how they touch mm -hmm. that plant. Right. You mean a medicine outside important. the purview of Big Pharma? Yes, outside. If, and even because we know that Big docs, Pharma. But we know docs would be happy to prescribe cannabis products that are have been, you know, FDA approved. Have, have, have approved. FDA approved. So you're talking about how do we make sure that access to whole plant cannabis um, stays? Mm -hmm. And yeah. that is, that's, that's the, that's the connection. Right. And, so, and we want it to stay. And, we and, want and, stay. and you're talking like the disparity within states. So like here in New York, you can only use THC and CBD. They isolate these and then they create the pro. I know, right? They're creating problems. They're creating problems. Oh my gosh. They don't even sell whole the herb, <laughs> you know, the flower. And we're hoping. I mean, I'm not even going to get into the the conversation around vape because that's a whole that has nothing to do with legal cannabis. No, mm -hmm. nothing no, to do not. with legal cannabis. Um, but you know, we're hoping that state of New York will really reconsider its position around the whole plant. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is what happens when you have people making policies when they don't Hello. understand Hello. anything about the plant, let alone the physiology of the endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we still have a long way to go as far as education goes mm -hmm. of clinicians, certainly, but also our policymakers, our product makers, our consumers, because, you know, for my opinion, at the end of the day, consumers are going to be the ones that are holding the whole system accountable. But in right. order for them to hold the system accountable, they also need to understand what is a good cannabis product. Why should I want whole that's plant right. cannabis if that's available to me? And why should I advocate for that You know, mm -hmm. at, at the legislature? Right. Can I, I want to kind of switch a little gears because you guys have so much clinical expertise around this. And you have your clinics, the Knox, what are they called? American In American cannabinoid clinics. American cannabinoid clinics. Oh, I, like I knew that. that. Mm -hmm. I knew that. Damn it. Anyway, I would clinics. love to kind of know from your perspective as physicians, like what are some of the conditions you treat? What have you just seen just incredible outcomes for? So I, I would love to know clinically some things about your practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the most common conditions that come in, people are have their pain of all, all types, 
um, insomnia is another one, anxiety, and I see a lot of GI upsets. Now, we also see cancer patients, too. So there is a variety of patients that we see of all ages, from babies to, you know, the elderly. Um, but yes, I've had some incredible uh, outcomes. I had a, a, he must have been around six months old, a baby brought to me, recommended from the University of, of Oregon. And to two young parents who absolutely knew nothing about cannabis, they were in the church, terrified, but the oncologist at the university told them there was nothing else they could do. Baby was having numerous seizures a day. Um, absolutely a floppy baby, nystagmus with his eyes. He had a brain tumor. He had a glioblastoma. Oh, my. And it was pressing on his optic nerve. So we started him on whole plant cannabis, mm-hmm. um, both THC and CBD. Within three months, it had shrunk 25%. Another three months, it had shrunk 50%. And then when we saw the baby, he was had you know bulked up. He could hold his head up. He was meeting milestones, still delayed, but meeting milestones that they didn't expect him to achieve. Mm -hmm. Seizures went down. Mm -hmm. And of course, the the doctors felt like, well, we don't know if cannabis did it or not. It could be the chemotherapy. (laughs) (laughs) So, and and, and that's all good. I mean, I'm not going to argue with them. The baby was getting better. So that's Mm -hmm. that's one story that I love telling. Mm -hmm. And what about the parents? The parents were terrified. They would call me like every day because they weren't sure. They needed a lot of hand holding Mm -hmm. because they knew nothing about cannabis. And they mm-hmm. were thinking, I'm putting my baby on weed. Mm-hmm. But they felt like their backs were against the wall. Mm-hmm. And they have been just, you know, ringing our praises since then and mm-hmm. telling all their friends, you know, you know, the miracle that happened to mm-hmm. their baby. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Do you guys, Jessica, Rachel, do you have any f- stories that just kind of hold on to you mm-hmm. like that? No, not like that. But what we what we've always found remarkable is Right, the number of prescription drugs that our patients are coming yeah. off of. Yeah. And if for nothing else, that's so important because we know prescription drugs are third leading cause of death in this country. What so drugs? If we can use uh, any anything. So, Oops. excuse me. We're dropping everything. Dropping things. Um, what I think is very interesting. Yes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, benzos, painkillers, mm-hmm. anxiety drugs, insomnia drugs. Um, What's interesting is in states that dictate what conditions mm-hmm. you can authorize cannabis use for, mm-hmm. we see a decline in the prescription drugs for mm-hmm. those specific conditions. And it's no different mm-hmm. in right. the clinical setting. You know, it, we don't talk a lot about benzodiazepine abuse and benzo use a lot. And this is something, an area I, I would love to see more research mm-hmm. on. And, and actually, we have a professional athlete study that's wrapped up. We're in data analysis mode right now with it, where we're tracking these athletes to see, you know, did they reduce their muscle, uh, you know, the muscle, um, oh my gosh, muscle relaxers. I can't even speak this morning. So did they reduce that? Did they reduce benzo use? And and because we're wanting to start to be able to track that Mm -hmm. piece so that we can see, you know, we're talking about people who are on, especially the elderly, who are on so many different kinds of medications. Yeah. And this is a plant that kind of treats a lot of the underlying conditions that maybe they don't need all of these. And these medications are killing them, mm-hmm. like you said. Causing all sorts of other effects. Right. Well, right. I'm watching this right now, this summer, the very, and I won't say their names because I love them more than anybody in the world, <laughs> but they've made incredible evolutions. And, you know, they're hearing about CBDs and they are now asking, um, 
is it all right if I use? I said, wait a minute. <laughs> Weren't I on punishment I in know. 1980? So I just have, real quick, four doctors in here. Um, I think part of the discussion and education of, in, within our families, obviously, is going to begin to start earlier now. Mm-hmm. And and I, I would imagine um, conversations you didn't have with your daughters when they were younger Looking back now, maybe there's some areas of conversations that we can have at this particular age. And I look back and I don't fault anybody. I'm not a parent myself, but, you know, I can imagine how I would talk to my teen if if they were. You know, I'm going to do a little self-disclosure here. We have one of mine in the room over there and and my kids grew up with. Obviously, as a parent, I was freaked out. I don't want them to use anything to numb themselves. But I was trying to always educate them on moderation. And anything you do to hide from your feelings is a dangerous thing, whether it's relationships, Mm -hmm. whether it's sex, whether it's food, whether it's cannabis, whether it's alcohol. Anytime you try to numb yourself out to the world, you're in trouble. And I tried to teach my children moderation on everything you know, tried my best to not them, because I also knew I had parents who my mother now is a fan of cannabis at 80 because she has major pain and has arthritis and she couldn't get over before her hip surgery, how much she had never tried it before Mm -hmm. until Jan was like, just, just take a little bit of this and see Mm -hmm. what happens. Mm -hmm. She couldn't get over it. And she was like, they lied to me, you know, yeah, and, and, and it was fascinating. And so now I, I really tried my best to teach my kids moderation, not to, to run mm-hmm. from it, because I grew up where you just don't do it. Just say no, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I get that, you know, that was a product of mm-hmm. a culture built on fear and racism and, and all of that. But now we have this opportunity to kind of change that. But mm-hmm. I think we need to be very smart about teaching people how to use things in a healthy exactly. way. Yeah. And I think that too. I don't think I had a conversation with my kids about marijuana. It just never, you know, entered my brain to talk to them about marijuana or drugs. Well, we um, were the dare population. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. They did right. it at school. Right. <laughs> I do want to say as a clinician, you know, I think we still need to teach moderation Absolutely. of anything. Absolutely. Um, whether it's your teenage kid or not. If, you know, and a lot of teenage patients we have you know their parents are coming to us for their ADHD or you know they they have a medical problem or they have a seizure disorder and we still have to teach them how to use that cannabis so they that so they don't overdo it Mm -hmm. can I ask you and I do want to I want to kind of I have some questions here have you seen cannabis where it's caused any problems for your patients and I ask all my patients that, and they all say no. They have no, unless you know That's someone amazing. ate a whole cookie, right? <laughs> but my husband would tell stories, and he's an ER doc, and um, he would say the number of patients he see in the ER were like five, and he, he can count in them years. in forty years, mm-hmm. like five patients. But what he they started to see when cannabis was coming on board was that more patients were ending up in the ER because they took too much THC. They didn't know how to use it. Right. So they'd end up, in, you know, freaked out in the ER. They get put in the ICU and released from the ICU the next day. So what does that tell you? But it just tells us as clinicians we need to do a better job mm-hmm. of teaching patients yeah. how to use and that, it. And that is one of the benefits of legalization, right? Because now instead of only being able to talk about cannabis as 
um, a drug of abuse as only a Schedule One drug, legalization mm. gives us the ability to provide the context right. of responsible use right. and what does medical use of cannabis look like. We can have those conversations now where before with just you know 100% prohibition, there was no opportunity to talk about using a, an illegal drug in right. a responsible way. Right? right, That doesn't make sense. So legalization has, has provided that benefit that to us where we can change the way we converse about it. Now, we've talked about clinical endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome here on the podcast. So I, I think our, our listeners um, really know about that. So tell me a little bit, because I saw this in your slide yesterday, about excessive endocannabinoids. What does that do? Because we're talking about the ECS and wanting to make sure that it's regulated. So we want to make sure if there's a deficiency that we're regulating it mm -hmm. to a certain standard. But what happens if the ECS is overactivated? Yeah, so so exactly right. We, we do hear a lot about clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. But, you know, in general, the endocannabinoid system can be out of balance. So you can have an excess, um, excessive tone of the endocannabinoid system, which might mean you have... Um, excess endocannabinoids or um, more cannabinoid receptors that are sort of out and available than what we would see in sort of a balanced state. And you two should correct me if I'm wrong because I can't remember everything perfectly, but with an excess um, endocannabinoid tone, that's when we start seeing, um, or that's what we see associated with obesity mm -hmm. and diabetes, um, I think with cancer, cancer right? and there's another that's slipping my mind, but we do see some pathologies associated with excess endocannabinoid tone. So it really is about balance mm -hmm. um, and about knowing how to modulate that system um, back to balance. And, and it's interesting because you can have excess and deficiency in one body going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so Correct. that, you know, that presents a, you know, a clinical challenge of how are we going to manage these sort of opposite effects to bring both into a state of balance. And that's why, you know, that's why in our clinical practice, we reach not only for phytocannabinoids and terpenes, but also for other what we call cannabimimetic practices. So that is including general nutrition, um, exercise, mind-body therapies, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which include deep breathing and massage and, and yoga and mindfulness and meditation, acupuncture, so on and so forth. Um, and also we talk about relationships and spirituality. All of these things go into bringing the, the ECS back into balance. Right, right. That It's such a wonderful kind of perspective, and, and I totally agree and echo kind of your whole sentiment around that. I, I, I know we're, we're wrapping up with time, but I wanted to kind of um, ask a couple more questions, and Randy, you pitch in too if you have any. What would you like to see change in our industry? That's a big question. Oh Where's well, you know, that'll eat up the last <laughs> ten minutes. This is, this is, I call what I what I what I call educating the entire supply, supply and demand chain is mm -hmm. elevating endocannabinoid system literacy and cannabis competency. Mm -hmm. Everybody in that supply and demand chain, and I'm I'm talking about law enforcement, regulators, legislators, consumers, patients, healthcare providers. We all need to know something. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I like to talk about, we have something we call between ourselves, the three rules of engagement. Uh -huh. And that's number one, understanding the language. Right. Standardize that language, you know, cannabinoid profiles, terpene profiles. Everybody should be speaking the same language and not some strain that's on the East Coast versus the same named right. strain on the West Coast. So those are two different 
chemo Brown bars. Yep. But if we standardize that language, then we know what we're talking about. So I like to see standardization that way, laboratory standards, research standards. Mm -hmm. And I also like people to understand the direction medicine is going, mm -hmm. because then we understand how to best use the, the information that we need. You know, I'm amazed also, and you say this, because even the word cannabis, I find that physicians have don't even think about it as a compound. Mm -hmm. They think that all cannabis is the same, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. they don't really understand the cultivar piece nope. and how, you know, it's like me saying that every antidepressant's the mm -hmm. same. It's not the same, you know, yeah. they have mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. mechanisms and how that they work. And and so that is a huge That's piece. That's a huge point. You know, it's kind of like everybody have different you know, fingerprints. Right. No two people have the same fingerprints. And no two people have the same endocannabinoid system tone. Mm -hmm. You know, no two plants are the same. Well, and think of all the research out there that they're studying cannabis. <laughs> you know, like cannabis causes cannabis. schizophrenia. I'm like, like give oh, me a right. break. We don't even know what the cultivar is. You know, what are the individual molecules yeah. in this plant? And you're not talking about the same type of... Yeah. Th that you can't make these standardized generalizations no. when we don't really know the specifics of the varieties we're studying. When I'm listening to this conversation, this could literally be a conversation between police and people who live in a particular neighborhood and the assumptions of the yeah. people who yeah. are supposed to be patrolling or controlling mm -hmm. and the what individuals that live within this neighborhood know on a daily basis. Right. I, as a person since the ninth grade who has never had a particular fear of it. Um, and it's never uh, took hold of my life that I would consider um, mm -hmm. it's problematic. It problematic. Um, so I've watched people at my relatives and people like yourselves who have made evolutions um, in their understanding and, uh, I think there's a long way to go. Oh, long yeah. ways to go. Long way mm -hmm. to go. Mm -hmm. And we can't mm -hmm. burn out on can't the way to get out. there. No. <laughs> no. No. But you know what? I really want healthcare providers just to, I mean, stop over sensationalizing this. Mm. You know, mm. we we know how to manage or we do our best to manage laundry lists of prescription drugs. Right. So if a patient's on 20 different pharmaceutical drugs, that's really no different than the patient being on a cannabis product of 20 phytochemicals. Mm. Again, it's our job to understand how those phytochemicals work in the body the same way we're supposed to understand how these yeah. isolated synthetic chemicals work in the body. Right. And I'm constantly reminding healthcare providers, cannabis management is no different than mm -hmm. everything else you already do. Mm. Right? You, mm -hmm. you start with the lowest derivative dose. You don't know what phytocannabinoids are present and what, what they do, but start low, like I would with a lisinopril, Mm -hmm. Increase slowly over time as needed, as needed for, you know, I, I want to see a response. If my patient is having unwanted effects with the lisinopril or the particular cannabis variety, we switch it up. Yep. It is so simple. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. And I think as soon as cannabis or marijuana comes into play, it's like doctors can no longer compute. Mm. <laughs> One thing you said I think is a very important, um, Jan, it's talking about, you know, how they do the research with a single molecule. Right. And they say, well, THC does this. 
But if you take it as a whole plant, you're going to get a whole different response. Yeah. Yep. And none of those research p- folks are set up to do, to do whole that. plant research. They're they're singling out CBD or they're right. singling out mm-hmm. THC and tell this is what it does mm-hmm. and you know get all, stroke fear in right. people. But if you the plant is put together the way it is for a reason, so they're not looking at the entourage of no. them. No, they're not. It, looking it's at it's such a fascinating field. It, yeah, they, I it mean, is. guys, I, so I love this because mm-hmm. the sky's the limit. We can be as creative as we want. Um, and you guys are really, truly making such a difference of elevating this conversation at the clinical level because we really need, you know, I have this passion for mental health professionals and really trying to get them to understand mm-hmm. what's going on. And you guys, you know, with physicians and other providers as well. And it's so exciting to have you here today. If you had one thing, this is our last thing. If you had one kind of, we call them mind munchies, Mm -hmm. like little food for thought Mm -hmm. for our listeners. What, do you have any potential mind munchies or kind of like parting words you would like to to say the, you know, to the person? We are what we eat. Hey. (laughs) Oh, I love that. So we talk a lot about clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. A lot of our deficiencies are due to true deficiencies in endocannabinoids. But a lot of people aren't putting together, and I think our nutritionists need to understand, is that anandamide and 2-AG, our most well-known and most well-studied endocannabinoids, they require us to consume omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids to make, particularly omega-6. Mm. Um, so we we need to go back to eating natural whole foods, eat fat. Fat does not make you fat. We need that mm. fat right. to build our own endocannabinoids. Mm. Right. So right. eat well, folks. Hey. I love that. Mm-hmm. Jessica, do you have anything? Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say it as succinctly as Rachel did. But, <laughs> um, you know, for me, I... I really love saying that cannabis is, in fact, a gateway drug, but it's a gateway drug to health, I think. You know, I think a lot of our patients come to us because they're interested in cannabis, and what they walk away with is, oh, but it's so much more than cannabis, because we are teaching them about the endocannabinoid system and teaching them that food is medicine. Um, It all starts with your nutrition, but also your relationships are really important. Your spirituality, which doesn't mean you have to necessarily believe in God, but it's just, you know, what is your sort of grander worldview and how do you relate to nature and to other people? All of these things are so important. So I guess I would say, you know, don't just stop at cannabis. Cannabis is an incredible tool for health, but also think about all the other factors in your life that that do play into your endocannabinoid system and your health overall. And, And she touched upon it. It's not about cannabis, people. It really isn't. It's about understanding that there's a system in your body that's controlling everything about you. So look at everything, your food, your exercise, your sleep, your spirituality. They all matter. That's right. Oh, wow. Randy, do you have anything? Well, I'm just excited. This is an exciting period of time in history. Um, I, I, If I had, I think we... I encourage you guys to capture everything you're doing as much as you can on in <laughs> podcasts, honestly. Because yeah. I always say this as a grower. If if I could go back and um, see Fannie Lou Hamer coming out of what uh, out of those fields and then organizing and realizing what she had, if I could go back and see John Coltrane and 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 his piano player and and Elvin Jones and mm-hmm. these those were times when it was. Uh, of huge thought, huge evolution, and we're at one of these crossroads again. So, 
Absolutely. Let's, let's make sure we capture it and put it in books and everything else. Mm-hmm. My, I, I love that, Randy. And, um, you know, my parting words, and, and we're going to kind of explore this throughout the season, um, this upcoming season with New Hemp Times, is how cannabis is this bridge between the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. And that, it, and really it's the ECS that's the bridge between the mind and the body. Cannabis as a phytocannabinoid can assist with that. But I really do believe that we have an opportunity also to listen. There is plant medicine for a reason, and we have the op. This has been used for thousands of years, and from my perspective, I think that this can actually help patients if they're working with clinicians such as yourself, myself, to kind of really use cannabis to kind of go inward and to see how they can create good in their lives and in the world. So that is my food for thought for the day. <laughs> I would love, thank you guys. I know thank this you. was so early. I appreciate your 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 desire to actually show up here. I wouldn't, to be quite <laughs> honest with you you know but I, I really do you guys have such a wonderful message and we're so grateful here at new hemp times That's that right. you you've come here this morning and um thank you all for listening thank and you. have thank a great day yep thank inspiring you. Thank you. Thank you.